Hello everybody, welcome to Atlanta Discourse. How y'all doing? Still your boy, Ade Balogun. I'm still your host, Anchor, moderator, depends on whatever you call me. I'm always here for you. Today I'm here with another very juicy topic. I'm looking at Ghana, the West African country. Why is everybody trooping to Ghana? Why is Ghana West African new beacon of hope? Yeah, it's Sub-Saharan new beacon of hope. What have they done well? What are they doing well? What have they gone through? You know, we're going to look at all that. We're going to have an empirical look at pre and post independence Ghana. So we're going to look at a political and economic life of Ghana. We'll first look at the political life, then the economic life, and uh, look at who has been ruling. You know, just look at Ghana, dissect it a bit. We try and do all this within the time we got. So as you know, in Atlantic Discourse, we embrace humanity to de- disseminate positive news in a world filled with very bad news. We give a voice to the unheard. We balance the information equation. We discuss the facts wherever it leads to. We combine the best of all races to get the best out of mankind. We serve as a bridge between the developing and the developed world, embracing art, sports, politics, IT, and faith-based issues. We do not run away from the facts. So today we are looking at the facts around Ghana. Why is Ghana the new tourism destination, the new business destination? So Ghana lies along the Gulf of Guinea in West Africa. It has a population of about 20 million with 10 administrative regions. The capital is Accra. We all know that. I mean, maybe some of us don't. The population is around, uh, the population of Accra is about 2 million. The country is named after the old West African empire of that name, which flourished some 600 miles north. Uh, The 250 miles long coastline is uh, dotted with more than 100 castles and forts testifying to a long history of Western interest and involvement. The first Europeans to set foot on the shore around 1475 were the Portuguese. They built their first castle in 1482, named the region Gold Coast for the vast quantities of gold they found. They were followed by the Dutch, then the Danes, the English, and the Swedes. The castles and forts served variously as slave posts, trading posts, army garrison, colonial residences and uh, what you call territorial markets. So by 1850, only the Dutch and the British were left. When the Dutch withdrew in 1874, the British proceeded to take the Gold Coast uh, to make it a crown colony, technically meaning a British colony at the time. So the Ashante were a dominant political and empire force in the central and forest region of the area. So a proud and warlike people steeped in traditional and custom and wealth the Ashanti were not subdued easily by the British. So the British made friends with more compliant and uh, coastal people, such as the Gars and the Fantes. So between 1817 and 1896, several wars, negotiations, treaties between the British and the various Ashanti kings brought the Ashantis into total submission. And their king was exiled to Seychelles. Anybody that knows where Seychelles is, you know it's very far from Ghana. So for the next 50 years, the British employed colonial control, you know, that they enjoyed colonial control and exploited natural resources such as timber and gold. So by the late 1940, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the drum beat for political independence were beginning to sound in the Gold Coast. The country achieved independence in 1957 and was renamed Ghana. Its independence ushered in a wave of other liberation from colonial uh, countries across Africa. It has, uh, however, been spared the aggravation of civil strife and socio-economic upheavals 
and other countries in Africa have suffered. So Ghana, as you know, from what I've just told you, I've never gone through any civil war, which clearly is going to portray some of the things we're going to talk about today because that shows some semblance of stability, which is not very common with African countries. Ghana has never had a civil war and was, uh, I've never had a civil war and that was experienced by like countries like Nigeria in the early 60s and uh, countries like Cote d'Ivoire in uh, 2002 and 2003. So it has not experienced the famine of Ethiopia, nor Ghana has the political strife and upheaval of Kenya or the Democratic Republic of Congo. But neither has it achieved its economic growth and social infrastructure development. Uh, as it, I mean, what I'm trying to say there is that it has not attained this, the right economic growth and the social uh, cultural infrastructure that Ghana's level should have attained after so many years of independence. But clearly it has shown stability more than all its neighbors and our, co our colleague nations. So clearly if you compare Ghana to uh, South, Asian, South uh, Asian countries, you will see that Ghana is behind, just like most African countries are behind. Unlike the Singapore, the Malaysia, the Indonesias of this world who have gone further. At independence, countries like Nigeria and Ghana were at par with China economically, but for some reason they have refused to fly. So Ghana's economic development has been disappointing, largely because its political development has been uneven. As one observer put it, any economic progress made hinges on the political solution that can be found. They work together. So in politics and economics, experience spans uh, the entire spectrum of African possibility. So it's always difficult to say there what, what's really happening because if you don't balance the two, there is no continuity. But like I said earlier on, Ghana has shown more hope, more stability compared to other African countries, despite uh, all our shortcomings. So the eloquent and charismatic Osaichefo Kwame Nkrumah led the country to independence in 1957. His rule, however, degenerated into the euphoria of independence, into a highly personalized one-party state under the CPP, that's the Conventional People's Party, marked by tight state control of the economy as well as social life, you know, it was more or less trying to practice socialism, technically, you know. So after his overthrow by the military in 1966, Ghana uh, experienced a further four coup d'etat in 1972, 1978, 1979, and 1981. Two short-lived attempts at constitutional rule, that's 69 to 72, and 79 to 81, were there, but they were short-lived, like I said. So, and uh, a period of greed, corruption, social chaos, era of military adventurism, dictatorship, constitutional and uh, conversion of uh, flight lieutenant Jerry Rollins who overthrew the the, the, uh, the, the despotic military government at that time in 1979. He came back to rule back again in 1981 to year 2000 before he left finally. We'll go into that in detail subsequently. So anyway, so debts in excess of $6 billion were inherited by Rollins and that made uh, Ghana a black beast of international financial institution. But by the end of the 1990s, Ghana has been uh, paraded by the World Bank as an example of successful structural adjustment because they adhere to all the World Bank policy despite the humongous $6 billion debt and they were able to pay back and make economic uh, sway under Jerry, John Jerry Rawlings, the popular young Ghanaian uh, revolutionary leader. The new patriotic party, the MPP, assumed power in 2001 through adjustment. The 
the new patriotic party has been party in 2001 through a peaceful election and uh, that was in 2000 so uh on a platform of positive change under rolling free trade private sector growth and uh, personal freedom four major socioeconomic periods coincided with the changes in the country's political leadership a closer look at this turbulent history will demonstrate that major lessons ghana has learned that economic reform prosperity cannot be achieved without attendant political development i said it before they work hand in hand you know so at independence in 1957, Ghana was politically inexperienced, in statecraft, and economically underdeveloped like most African countries, you know. So, British colonial rule had not allowed the fundamental organs necessary for institutionalizing democracy because they, they were too much interference. So, life under indigenous leadership, you know, could not grow because of the undue interference and Nkrumah at that time did not help matters because it was anti-colonial rule and you know for some reason the ship did not sail in the same direction. To be sure there was a significant crop of educated elites as well as wealthy traders, cocoa farmers and powerful traditional chiefs. You know education was fairly well established especially in the southern half of the country. So due partly to the effort of missionaries and colonial administration this was prevalent in most uh, countries, at least in the West African sub-region, because missionaries brought education through Christianity, so as well as Ghana's social leaders. The country's economy was sustained through export of cocoa, timber, minerals like gold and diamond, but it lacked the technical capacity to generate employment, produce new consumer goods, create wealth in the social sector. So that was probably one of the reasons why the Nkrumah government collapsed at that time. So. But, you know, when rallies came in, you know, they, they, they entered a new constitutional force. That was in January 7, 1993, you know, to, to, to found the Ford Republic on Ghana. So I'm going to lay a lot of emphasis on that period because that was when Ghana really became a very prominent country economically in modern times because that, they had that democracy for a long time till date. So... On that day, Rollins was inaugurated as president and members of parliament saw their out of office. That's in 1996. The opposition fully contested the presidential and the parliamentary election, which were described as peaceful, free and transparent by domestic and international observers. Rollins was re-elected with 57% of the popular vote. In addition, Rollins' NDC party won 133 of the parliament's 200 seats, just one seat short of the two-third majority needed to amend the constitution. Although the election returns of the two parliamentary states face uh, legal challenges. So that was how Rollins transformed from a military rule to a democratic leader in a free and fair election, which was landmarkish in itself for Ghana. So it's part of what, what gave them stability. In the presidential election of 2000, Rollins endorsed his vice president, John Atta Mills, as the candidate of the ruling NDC. John Kufo stood for the new patriotic party won the election and became the president on 7 January 2001. The vice president was Aliu Mahama. The presidential election of 2000 was viewed as free and fair. Kufo won another term again in the presidential election. Now, it is, inst it is instructive to add that Rollins' party was in power, but they lost to the opposition party, very rare in Africa. So that's been going on in Ghana for a very long time, you know. So... That was after Rollins finished his time. He handed over to his, his uh, running mate, was a flag bearer for his party, but lost to the opposition party. 
So the presidency of Kufo saw several social reforms, such as reform in the system of uh, national health insurance of Ghanaians in 2000 and, uh, 2003. So in 2005, we saw the start of the Ghana School Program still under Kufo, in which a free hot meal per day was provided in public schools and kindergarten schools in the poorest areas. Although some projects were criticized as unfinished and unfunded, the progress of Ghana was noted internationally. I know that internationally. So they were taking note of continuity in government. So President Kufo gave up power in 2008. The ruling new patriotic front chose Nana Akufo-Addo's uh, uh, son of Edward Akufo-Addo, you know, as their candidate, while the uh, National Democratic Congress chose John Atamils, who stood for the third time. That's Rollins' former VP. After a runoff, John Atamils won the election. Note again that the opposition party is, is winning the party in power, which is very rare in Africa. So those, I think, are landmarkish situations. Those are things that give Ghana international reverence. It shows that the elections are always free and fair, you know. So... Atamils stood for the third time after a runoff. John Atamils won the election. So, on the 24th of July 2012, Ghana suffered a shocking blow when their president died. Power then given to his vice president, John Dramani Mahama. That was when Atamils died. So, naturally and constitutionally, Mahama had to take over. He chose the then governor of the Central Bank of Ghana, Kwesi Amisa Ato, as his vice. The National uh, Democratic Congress won the 2012 election, making John Mahama rule again his, uh, his first time. So, Mahama ascended power as VP, then the election came, he won. So, still free and fair, nobody is complaining. Jonathan Mills was sworn in as president on 7th January 2009 in a peaceful transition after Nana Kufuado was narrowly defeated. Mills died of several causes and was succeeded by Vice President Mama. I just said that. So, following Ghana's presidential election in 2012, John Mama became president elect and was inaugurated in 7 January 2013. Ghana was a stable democracy. That's why, that's the inference of all the Ghana has been stable. So, as a result of Ghana's presidential election in 2016, Nana Kufuado, who has now become a perennial presidential candidate, became president elect and was inaugurated on the 5th. As the fifth president of the Fourth Republic of Ghana and eighth president of Ghana on the seventh of January two thousand and seventeen, in December uh, in December twenty twenty, President Nana Kufuado was elected again for a second time in a tightly contested election. So, this is a brief history of what has been happening pre and post independent Ghana. You know, now they have attained stability. Their Fourth Republic has been very, very, very noteworthy. You know, which is what has given them a lot of respect internationally. Uh, you can see about two or three instances of parties in power, parties in authority, losing to the opposition. It is very rare and most uncommon in Africa. So, economically, let's look at Ghana. Ghana, Ghana. You know, we know Ghana is endowed with gold, oil palms, situated between the Trans-Saharan trade routes and the African coastline. Uh, which has which always visited by successive uh, European traders. I'm talking pre pre independence Ghana now. The area known today as Ghana has been involved in all phases of African economic development during the last thousand years. So, as the economic fortunes of African society have waxed and waned up and down, so to say, you know, Ghana has not been left out. They've had their own ups and downs too. So, 
living that country in, in, in the early 1990s in a state of arrested development, you know. Like I told you, they had the Danes, they had the Swedes, the British came, the Portuguese were the first. So they had their own fair share of ups and downs and topsy turvy, so to say. So unable to make the leap to the to Africa's next level as yet on certain phase of the economic development, which has to do. Of course, when Nkrumah came in, he was very naive and didn't know what to do because he was looking at socialism. He's a great leader, no doubt, but at that time there was naivety, which wasn't uncommon which was uncommon rather with most African leaders at that time. So as early as the 13th century, present-day Ghana was drawn into long-distance trade in large part because of its gold reserve. The Trans-Saharan trade, one of the most wide-ranging trading networks in pre-modern time, involved an exchange of European, North African and Saharan commodities southward in exchange for the product of African savannas and forests, including gold, kula nut, slaves. So, I mean, we are, we are worried about that. So, present-day Ghana named Gold Coast by European, uh, European traders was an import, important source for the gold traded uh, across the Sahara. Centralized states such as Ashante control prices by regulating production. Marketing of this precious commodity was a very, very, very part of the Ashanti trade. So, as Europeans' navigational techniques improved in the 15th centuries, Portuguese and later Dutch and the English traders tried to circumvent Sahara trade by sailing directly to a southernmost source on the West African coast. So, in 1482, the Portuguese built a fortified trading post at Elmina. That's the popular Elmina castle in Ghana where everybody's going now for tourism, you know. So, and began purchasing gold, ivory, and pepper from African coastal merchants. You know, they've mastered their, their, their shipping their shipping routes. Their ships were better, they could navigate better at that time. So it was easy for the for the Portuguese, the British, Europeans, so to say, to, to move around freely coastally in Africa for trade. So although Africa for centuries had exported their raw materials, which is still ivory, gold, kula nut, in exchange for important uh, for imports ranging from salt to foreign materials, the introduction of the Atlantic slave trade in the early 16th century changed the nature of African export production in fundamental ways. An increasing number of Ghanaians sought to enrich themselves by capturing fellow Africans in warfare and selling them to slave dealers from North America and South America. The slaves are transported to the coast and sold through African merchants using the same routes and connections through which gold and ivory had formerly flowed. In return, Africans often received guns as payment, which were, could be used to capture more slaves and, more importantly, to gain and preserve political power. You know, so this still pre-independence pre Ghana, and in the, an estimated 10 million Africans, at least half a million from the Gold Coast, left the continent in this manner. Some economics have argued that the slave trade increased Africa's economic resources and therefore did not necessarily impede development. But others, notably historian Walter Rodney, have argued that by removing the continent's most valuable resources, which are the humans, the slave trade robbed Africa of unknown inventions, innovations, and production. Well, that's that's very true also. You know, I mean, it's, it's you, you can't tell who will have done this well or not done that well. So Rodney further argued that the slave trade followed a process of underdevelopment whereby African societies came to rely on export of resources crucial to their own economic growth, thereby precluding local development of those resources. 
although some scholars maintain that the subsequent economic history of this region support Rodney's interpretation, no doubt. So, no consensus exists on this point. Indeed, in recent years, some historians not only have rejected Rodney's interpretation, but have also advanced the notion that it is the Africans themselves, rather than the arrays of external forces, that are to blame for the continent wars. Having said that, when the slave trade ended in the early years of the 19th century, the local economy became focused on so-called legitimate trade, which the imagined industrial powers of Europe encouraged as a source of materials and market to aid their own production and sales. The British in particular gained increasing control over the region throughout the 19th century and promoted the production of palm oil, timber, as well as the continuation of gold production. In return, Africa were inundated with imports of consumer goods that, uh, unlike the luxuries or the locally unavailable import of trans-Saharan trade, we have quickly displaced African uh, African products, especially testers. So, when the colonial where the colonialists brought their own stuff, even the Africans had to admire it. So, in 1874, cacao trees were introduced from the Americas. Cocoa quickly became the colony, colony's major export. So, Ghana produced more than half the global yield by the 1920s. Can, can you imagine as far back as the 1920s, Ghana has been producing half of the world cocoa. So that's that that that's a lot, you know. So African African farmers use kinship network like business corporation to spread cocoa cultivation through the large areas of southern Ghana. Legitimate trade restored the overall productivity of Ghana's economy. However, the influx of European goods began to displace indigenous industries and farmers focused more on cash crop than on essential food crops for local consumption. That's what I was trying to say for minutes back. So, when Ghana gained its independence from Britain in 1957, the economy appeared stable and prosperous. Ghana was the world-leading producer of cocoa, boasted a well-developed infrastructure to service trade because they've been trading for as, as early as the 19. Or late uh, 18th century so they had mastered the art initially with slavery then into other things so Ghana was the world leading producer of cocoa boosted a well-developed infrastructure to service trade and enjoyed a relatively advanced education system at independent uh, president Kwame Nkrumah sought to use the apparent stability of the Ghanaian economy as a springboard for economic diversification and expansion he began process of moving Ghana from a primarily agricultural economy to a mixed industrial one. Using cocoa revenue as security, Nkrumah took out loans to establish industries that would produce import substitute, as well as processes many Ghanaians could export. Nkrumah's plans were ambitious and grounded in desire to reduce Ghana's vulnerability to the world trade. Unfortunately, the price of cocoa collapsed in mid 1960 destroying the fundamental stability of the economy and making it nearly impossible for Nkrumah to continue his plan. Pervasive corruption excavated these problems, you know. So, in 1966, a group of military officers overthrew Nkrumah and uh, inherited a nearly bankrupt uh, country. So, you can see clearly that, like I said, if you listen to what I've been saying, Nkrumah came in, they were, they were, they were brilliant people, but they, economically they were naive in area of administration. There was no template for them to follow. So since then, Ghana has been caught in a cycle of debt, weak commodity demand, 
currency overvaluation, which has resulted in decay of product, uh, productive capacity and a clipping of uh, foreign debt. One of the prices uh, of cocoa, when, once the price of cocoa fell in the mid-60s, Ghana obtained less of the foreign currency necessary to repay their loan. So the value of which jumped almost 10 times between 1960 and 66. Some economics recovered, uh, recommended that Ghana devalue its currency in the city to make its cocoa price more attractive to the world market, but devaluation of cities will have rendered low repayment in the United States dollars even much more difficult. So devaluation is always what the Western world recommends, but even, even at that, you know, the overdevaluation will, will make it more difficult to pay back those loans. So, until the early 1980s, successive government refused to devalue the currency, with the exception of the government of Kofi Butsia, which devalued the city in 1971 and was promptly overthrown. Cocoa price language discouraging cocoa production altogether and leading to smuggling of existing cocoa crops to neighboring countries, where francs rather than cities will be used to obtain payment. As production and official export collapsed, revenue necessary for the uh, survival of the economy was obtained through the procurement of further loans. So Ghana went and got further indebted. So thereby intensified a self-destructive circle driven by debt and reliance on vulnerable world commodity prices. By the early 1980s, Ghana economy was in advanced state of collapse. Per capita gross domestic product showed negative growth throughout the 1960s and fell by 3.2% from 1970 to 1981. So, most important was the decline in cocoa production, which fell by half between the mid 1960s and the late 70s, drastically reducing Ghana's share of the world market from one third in the early 70s to only one eighth in 1982 to 1983. Remember, in the early 19th century, Ghana was controller for the world market of cocoa. So, at the same time, mineral product fell by 32%, gold production declined by 47%, diamond by 67%, manganese at that time by 43%, and, night, uh, and by, I think, bauxite fell by 46%. So, inflation averaged more than 50% a year between 1966 and 81. So, hitting that 106% inflation in 1981. So, real minimum wages dropped from an index of 75 in 1975 to one of 15.4 in 1981. Wow, that's really bad. So, tax revenue fell from 17% of GDP in 1973 to only 5% in 1983. And that's why whatever Rollins did from 96 to 2000 until date, one just has to give it to the stable democracy of Ghana. You can see that those periods were very terrible times in Ghana. In 1981, a military government under the leadership of Light Lieutenant Jerry John Rollins came to power calling itself the Provisional National Defense Council. Uh, the Rawlings regime initially blamed the nation's economic problems on the corruption of previous government, which is normal. When the military come in, that's what they do, you know. So Rawlings soon discovered, however, that Ghana's problem was the result of forces more complicated than economic abuse. Following a severe drought in 1983, the government accepted stringent International Monetary Fund and World Bank loan conditions and instituted the Economic Recovery Program. That's on that earlier. That's, that's what really brought Ghana back to reality. It was a very tough period. They went through a lot, but they were able to get themselves back, you know? So, signaling a dramatic shift in policy, the ERP funda fundamentally changed the government's social, political, and economic orientation, aimed primarily at enabling Ghana to repay its foreign debts. The ERP exemplified the structural adjustment program policies 
formulated by International Banking and Donor Institution in 1980. So the program emphasized promotion of export sector and an enforced fiscal stringency. You know, because African countries, we do waste, there's a lot of waste in governance anyway. I mean, I can tell that from Nigerian perspective. So, which together aim to eradicate budget deficit. So, the PNDC, that's the, what they were calling the military council then, that was ruling the country. The PNDC followed the ERP faithfully and gained the support of the international financial community. The effect of the ERP on the domestic economy, however, led to a lower standard of living for most Ghanaians. So things became tough. I remember a lot of Ghanaians were leaving the country. They came to Nigeria, Togo, Benin, you know, to do many other duties. To get a box of matches was tough in Ghana. Even soap, even sugar, very minor, very essential commodities were so scarce. But, well... Today, the rest is history. Ghana is on, on, on the map of the world. So let me quickly look at what, what the World Bank has to say of Ghana. You know, as we all know already, Ghana has a, is bordering about three countries, Togo, Cote d'Ivoire, and Burkina Faso. The World Bank thinks the population of Ghana is 29.6 million, which is about 30 million, not 20 million, as I said. You know, so that's a two, 2018 World Bank estimate. So... Well, we'll go with that. I mean, it's World Bank estimate, so I'm just referring to document now. So in the past two decades, it has taken major strides towards democracy, which is what I said earlier on, under a multi-party system, which is in, with its independent judiciary winning public trust. I will repeat that. It has taken major strides towards democracy under multi-party system, which is independent judiciary winning public trust. That is the key thing there. If the judiciary is independent, in, in, in a country, then it's it's you have fifty percent of the problem is solved. It means the law the law works. You know that means Ghana is a country of law. I mean, it's almost impossible to get the African country where the law works. So Ghana consistently ranks in the top three countries in Africa for freedom of speech. That's a lot also, and press freedom, which with strong broadcast media, with radio being the medium with the greatest reach. Factors such as this provide Ghana with solid social capital, you know. So those are what the, what the Westerners look at in developed countries. If you have uh, the courts are free, the, I mean the judiciary is free, you have free speech, freedom of movement and all that, then they will do business with you. President Nana Kufuado's recent election after the Supreme Court dismissed the opposition election petition gives the governing new patriotic party a second term, you know. So they're, 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 they're on a cruise right now, you know. So, if we look at recent economic development and outlook, Ghana's economy contracted by 3.2% and 1% in the second and third quarters of 2020, respectively. So, pushing the country to a recession for the first time in 38 years. I mean, that that's a lot of consistency, but, you know, but if you look at it, however, I mean, it was a, a modest growth of 1.1% is for the, for the full year of 2020 thanks to the strong growth of 4.9% growth in the first quarter of 20. So that was able to cover up for whatever deficit they had there. So at the onset of the COVID-19 crisis, you know, you could see that that was when they had the recession and the drop, which was a worldwide phenomenon. So you can't just say, you know, everybody felt COVID. There's nobody in the world that didn't, that the economy didn't tank. The whole world economy tanked, you know. So, but because they had a, a very substantial growth had been issued, so it was able to cushion the effect. The 1.1% GDP growth in 2020 is a steep fall from the pre-COVID-19 level of 65 So 
The government attempted to mitigate the pandemic impact on households and the businesses by enacting the coronavirus alleviation, you know, they call it CAP, and the medium-term COVID-19 alleviation and revitalization of the enterprise support care, they call it CARES. You know, this program was established in the mid-2020 just to alleviate and cushion the economic effect of the COVID-19 pandemic. But the low growth in 2020 coupled with high population growth has pushed road capital income 1% lower than in 2019. I think the whole world felt that. So Ghana economy showed early signs of recovery in the second half of 2020 as business sentiments improved with the ending of lockdown as the year-on performance in the agriculture, manufacturing, tradable service sector saw some strong recoveries in the third quarter of 2020. So government financing needs increased substantial increased substantially during the pandemic, pushing government to resort to central bank financing, resulting in sharp increases in debt and debt service costs. That's also a worldwide phenomenon, you know. So, I mean, fiscal pressures arose from costly financial sector reform in 2018 to 2019 and the energy sector recovery plan, the ESRP, you know. So, they all started in 2019. So, those were, those were policies that have always been there to cushion effect. The overall fiscal deficit, including energy and the financial sector cost, was therefore already elevated at 7.6% of GDP in 2019 and the debt to ratio at 63.9%. So clearly, in 2020, the COVID-19 crisis led to the suspension of the fiscal rule as the fiscal deficit, including financial and energy sector costs, reaching 16.2% of GDP, and the public debt of 76.1% of GDP. While debt remains sustainable, the uh, the April 2023 April 2020 debt sustainability analysis that's the DSA concluded that Ghana remains at high risk of debt distress. Ghana's current account deficit widened to three percent of GDP at the end of 2020 from 2.9 in 2019. So reflecting a lower trade surplus and higher service outflow. However, strong remittances in flows and lower net investment in income outflows, especially from the extractive sector, help moderate the impact on reserve. So the outlook, the medium term, the medium term negative impact of the pandemic on growth will continue to be felt through low external demand for Ghana. So lower foreign direct investment and tourism receipts will also will always cushion that effect. So which is which is what is really helping now, tourism. Everybody is going there because of stability. The world, the economy is in trouble, but you must have something to offer the world. In this vein, Ghana is offering stability. You know. However, recent uh, rapid recovery of oil prices complemented by the expected implementation of the Ghana CARES program will likely result in the realization of the upside scenario with 2021 projected growth of 4.2% and a medium-term 2021 to 2023 average growth of 4.5%. With relative stability in the exchange rate and central banks gradual return to higher, look at that, relative stability in the exchange rate. How many African countries can boast of that? You know, so with the relative stability in the exchange rate and central banks gradual return to a tighter monetary policy stance, inflation is expected to moderate to the central bank target rate. Fantastic. So they're in control. The fiscal and current account balances are expected to improve only slowly after the medium term largely reflected adverse external factors and a slow return to normalcy in domestic revenue mobilization. 
So against this backdrop of economic slowdown and new restrictions, poverty is likely to continue to rise in 2021 to 30.9% before declining as private consumption growth recovers. So the risk and challenge is basically right now for the Ghanaian economy is that the two major short-term risks are health-related. First risk from the second pandemic wave already affecting some African countries. It's affecting everybody, actually. So with some virulent variant of the COVID-19 virus, there has been a sharp rebound in cases in Ghana, you know, requiring further restriction. A fast vaccine rollout could help mitigate this risk. Secondly, the Ebola outbreak in Guinea in mid-January poses, because Guinea is, 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 is very close to Ghana, poses significant health and economic risk to Ghana, given the very porous uh, land borders. So Ghana's physical position is also, a ma- is also a major risk factor with rising domestic and external debt, including the Eurobond. So clearly, I mean, Ghana has gone through its own fair share of economic upheaval, a lot of topsy-turvy, the United States has gone through it, everybody's gone through it, Europe is also in a lot of trouble, you know, China seems to have control for so many reasons, they seem to have uh, for more foresight and prepared to for most of these things. So everybody is boring, you know, but what is Ghana doing very well? Everybody? They have economic stability, they have political stability. Political stability is, is so, so, so important. You know, imagine you knowing you're running for president and you're not worried you can, I mean, that the incumbent will not go away. That is very rare. Even in some Asian countries, you have people rule for 30 years. So Ghana has caught a major landmark there. And I think that stability is what is making everybody go there. They are, today, there are manufacturing industries that are leaving countries like Nigeria, Burkina Faso, Syria alone. They are all going to Ghana because Ghana has stability. The judiciary in Ghana is free. They give judgment without interference from the government of the day. You know, the, the Ghanaian police, they do their job irrespective of who you are. You know, the law is the law. So clearly, Ghana is a country of law. That is a key thing there. Ghana is a country of law. The law works there. Nobody is above the law in Ghana. And people have been prosecuted in Ghana for breaking the law. I hope, you know, people, politically exposed people, we can go on and on. But the history of Ghana... In, in, for this stability can never be complete without referring to what J.J. Rawlings is. late now, but that to me is the father of modern Ghana. He took very bold decision when it mattered. He, 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 as a military guy, he, they, they planned a coup, succeeded, and wiped out people that were viruses, the cancer of the Ghanaian society. And, and I think, in my opinion, that really helped them to get to where they are. So I'm going to stop at that. Ghana has shown stability. Ghana has shown seriousness. Ghana is a country of law. Very long history. Fantastic leaders. Sometimes terrible. But they have shown consistency. The current president, Nana Akufu Addo, is an extraordinary guy. Fantastic gentleman. You know, can see someone that ran for president almost three times before he got it. He never gave up. So I'm going to end there with Ghana. Why everybody is going to Ghana is because there's stability and it's a country of law. So my name remains Ade Balogun. So next week, I'm going to come to you with another very juicy topic. And that's my beat for today. Thank you. Have a lovely weekend. Bye.